Technology Corner, take two. Okay, this time we're recording it. Hello, this is Technology Corner for the week of August 20th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Do you ever have one of those days when you do something just utterly stupid? This is take two of Technology Corner, and it's take two because nothing was recorded the first time. (laughs) That's right. When you want to record something on the computer, you do have to push the record button. Okay, so product update. Logitech's Bluetooth headphones. Several weeks ago I mentioned these things. Said how nice they were and how, how good it was to be able to exercise in the gym without having to worry about cables. And that they sounded sort of okay. You know, nothing to write home about in the sound category. But for where I was using them and what I was doing with them, they were fine. And I thought they were a pretty good deal. I got them for about 30 bucks. Wrong. Well, part of it was right. Yes, it was handy to be able to work in the gym without cables. What wasn't so neat about them was that after three weeks, they broke in half. Unusable. So, if you have not purchased a set of Logitech Bluetooth headphones, don't. These things come in two versions. There is one specifically for the iPod, and then there is another set that works for any, well, they, they say any MP3 player, but it'll work for any audio device. It'll work for three weeks until it breaks anyway. The problem is there's a seam or perhaps a weld halfway between the two earpieces at exactly the point where the most stress is applied when you put these on or take them off. As a result, after I wore these for about an hour a day for three weeks, they broke in half. Logitech no longer makes them. They have discontinued them. Wise move, considering the quality. Logitech says they will refund what I paid for them, but I haven't received the payment yet. The smartest thing Logitech could do would be to recall all of these, because they're all going to break, and it's not going to do Logitech's image any good. So if you have a set, complain when they break. And if you don't have a set yet, don't get one. By the way, I like to hear from listeners. Let me know where in the world you are and what you think of the format. The address, bill.blinn, B-L-I-N-N, at techbiter, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R, dot com. Thumb drives. Talk about those every now and then. First one I talked about was a 16-megabyte thumb drive. I was amazed. This is from back in the days that if you wanted to take files with you, you put them on floppies, a big stack of floppies, or you emailed it to yourself, or if you had a lot of money, you had a zip drive. So I was amazed many years ago when I was able to put 16 megabytes of data on a device that cost 50 or $75, a device that fit in my hand and fit easily in even a shirt pocket. A couple of weeks ago, I managed to lose one of these thumb drives. They're so small, they're also easily losable. This was the thumb drive that had all my user IDs and passwords on it. Am I panicked about this? No. The user IDs and passwords were all held in a little program called PINS, P-I-N-S. This is a program that encrypts the passwords in such a way that only I can read them. So I lost my little device, but I didn't lose the passwords. So I was in the market for another thumb drive. 
found what looked like a really good deal from Kingston, the U3 Data Traveler. Two gigabytes, under $50, and after a rebate, under $40. So I ordered one. It arrived, I plugged it in, and there were two icons. One that looked like a Phantom CD, and then the device itself. I also noticed that it took about 30 seconds to initialize. That seemed unacceptable, so I did a little investigation. And what I found is that the U3 stuff includes a variety of applications. It includes Pass2Go. That's a password manager. Unlike the password manager I use, it's not free. It'll work free for 60 days. After that, if you don't pay for it, it limits you to 10 passwords. I have more than 10 passwords. Well, I didn't want that program. I have a program. I like the program I have. It also offered me ACD Systems C program, ACDC, photo management software. Well, I don't need that either. You see, I have the full version of ACDC. I have Thumbs Plus. I have other photo management software. Didn't need that one. Offered me the Zinio digital textbook and magazine software. This is essentially a free player. Once you have the free player, you can use that if you subscribe to any magazines that arrive in digital format, the Zinio digital format. Well, I already have that. I really didn't need it on there. So I didn't need any of the software they offered. I didn't really like the idea of it mounting a Phantom CD whenever I started it up, and I didn't like the delay caused by mounting that Phantom CD. I found on the Internet a program called U3 Uninstaller. Downloaded that, read the instructions, made sure that I offloaded any data that was already on the drive. I did that because I was sternly warned by the application, the U3 Uninstaller, that it was going to format the drive. Recommendations I've seen from other users suggest that if you use this, you make sure that the thumb drive you want to remove the U3 software from is the only data device plugged into a USB port. So I unplugged the other devices that were plugged into USB ports, ran the application, simple three-step application, takes about 30 seconds. During the process, it warns you rather strenuously not to remove the device during the removal process. If you do that, there's a fairly good chance that its little brain will be so severely scrambled that you'll never be able to use it again. But at the end of about 30 seconds, the process ends. It tells you to remove the device, plug it back in, and voila, the U3 smart stuff is gone. Why is that stuff there? Well, here's my theory. Pass to go, ACD systems, Zinio, and perhaps a few others, pay U3 to distribute their software. U3 pays manufacturers to distribute the software. As a result, manufacturers such as Kingston are able to sell the devices they sell for less money. That's fine as far as it goes. It would be nice, however, if somewhere on the packaging or the advertising they point that out. Thinking about moving from Windows 2000 to Windows XP? Well, if so, you're oh, just a couple of years late. Vista is on the horizon, of course. But there are some people who might still want to convert from Windows 2000 to Windows XP. I heard from someone like that this week, and the question was that I have a couple of USB hard drives. Is the new setup going to want to format the external drives when I install them? Well, the answer is... No. 
There are two ways that the drives could be formatted. They could be formatted as FAT32. If so, they're going to be recognized as FAT32. They can also be formatted NTFS. And if they're formatted as NTFS, they'll be mounted and recognized as NTFS. Windows XP has all the USB drivers that you'll need. The drives themselves are going to be assigned a drive letter. You may not care for the drive letter that they are assigned automatically by the system. And if so, it's very easy to go to the management console and reassign them. I have a couple of drives, for example, that originally showed up, I believe, as G and H. I didn't want them to be there. I wanted them to be on uh, M and N. Why? Well, M was the multimedia drive, and N was just another drive. So migrating from Windows 2000 to Windows XP is really pretty easy. It's probably one of the easier operating system upgrades you'll ever do. I think that I was probably running betas of XP uh, before it was released, although memory fades. XP offers compatibility that the Windows 95 and 98 had. They were compatible with, particularly Windows 98 was compatible with a lot of stuff that Windows NT was definitely not compatible with, and even Windows 2000 had some compatibility issues. That's the new word for problems. Windows XP combines the reliability of NT and Windows 2000 with that compatibility that comes from the earlier operating system. So it's it's really a, a big improvement over Windows 2000 in most regards. My one recommendation, though, is to turn off all the pretty stuff. Just use the classic interface for the start menu and disable all of the junk settings in Windows Explorer, not the Internet Explorer, the Windows Explorer, the one that is called My Computer. By default, Explorer is going to hide extensions on files, and that has to be one of Microsoft's dumbest moves ever. Probably someone thought that, well, this is the way the Mac does it, so we ought to do that. Well, the problem is that the Mac doesn't use extensions for anything, or didn't at the time. Since Apple's operating system is now Unix-based, the extensions can be significant, but at the time, they weren't. Well, in the Windows world, file extensions have always been significant. When you hide them, you're hiding information that users need. It's possible in a directory to have a dozen files, each with a different extension, but the same base file name. And if you hide the extensions, the only way you can tell the difference between those files is from the little tiny icon. Dumb idea, Microsoft. Dumb, dumb dumb. In nerdly news this week, Apple says its Chinese factories will adhere to the standard 60-hour week. That's right, 60-hour week. That's apparently the standard in China. China is where most Apple hardware is made. Apple released a report that says workers at its iPod assembly plant worked more than 60 hours per week, more than 60 hours per week, more than 60 hours a week, about a third of the time. Also says they worked more than six consecutive days, about a quarter of the time. Apple has been criticized quite a bit in the past few weeks for working conditions at its Chinese factories. However, Apple's report says that it found no evidence of forced labor or child labor. And according to Apple, and I quote, Our investigation found that our iPod manufacturing partner, Foxconn, complies with our supplier code of conduct in most areas and is taking steps to correct the violations we found. This is a big plant, by the way. Foxconn's facility 
has 200,000 employees, 200,000 employees at a single factory. Some 32,000 of those actually live at the plant in dormitories, and about 30,000 of them work to assemble Apple products. So about a sixth of the people at the plant are working on Apple projects. The investigators interviewed 100 of them. Now let's review. 200,000 employees, 30,000 working for Apple, 100 interviewed. That small number of interviews, along with the fact that the report was paid for by Apple, and the lack of any independent verification, have caused some additional questions to be raised about the report's validity. Perhaps the good news, at least half of the workers are being paid more than minimum wage. What is minimum wage? Well, in that part of China, and apparently minimum wage in China varies by area, it's about $50 per month. So, the average work week, 60 hours. Chinese workers assembling your shiny new iPod at 60 hours a week are being paid, if they're getting minimum wage, about 18.9 cents an hour. Now, that might have something to do with Apple's $4.37 billion profit in the last quarter. Think different, Apple. Unless you've been off the planet for the past couple of weeks, you know that Dell is planning to recall more than four million batteries because a small number of them might overheat, and in a couple of cases, the batteries have actually caught fire. Dell isn't the first company to recall batteries, and it certainly won't be the last. Others may actually join this recall. The batteries involved are made by Sony, they're used in computers made by a lot of other manufacturers, including Apple's. Dell Senior Vice President Alex Gruzin says there have been only a few incidents of overheating batteries, so he says it would have been easy to justify those as anomalies. However, he says, the company puts safety first. Well, there's also the fact that Sony's going to be paying to replace the batteries. Sony is going to suffer most of the financial consequences, perhaps $225 million dollars, so the folks at Dell can very easily talk about putting safety first. The recall covers about 14% of Latitude, Inspiron, XPS, and Precision Notebooks that were sold between April 1st, <laughs> that's appropriate, April 1st, 2004, and July 18th, 2006. If you have a faulty battery, you return it to Dell. Dell ships you a replacement. Easy enough. However, during the time you're waiting for that replacement, your portable computer has a somewhat limited range of portability. That limited range is defined by the length of the power cord. Dell has already received 10,000 batteries from affected consumers. How many batteries have they shipped out? Uh, zero. The replacement batteries won't be arriving until sometime in September. There's a link on the Technology Corner website, www.techbiter.com, that will take you directly to Dell's battery recall site, or you can go there straight away just by typing dellbatteryprogram.com. And they have a matrix that will help you determine whether your battery is one that needs to be returned. Well, thanks for listening to Take Two. This has been Technology Corner for the week of August 20th, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com You can also send email from there and I would like to hear from you. Let me know where you are in the world. Thanks. Bye-bye. Stay to Fade to Black.